Hello, I'm Sarah. And I'm Joanna. And we are your therapists next door. Join us as we demystify therapy and destigmatize mental health. Every episode, we interview a healthcare professional. It's sometimes serious, sometimes sad, most times ridiculous. This week, we welcome Susan Rogendorf, who works as a crisis clinician in an ER. Welcome everyone to Therapist Next Door, the podcast that shows you the human side of your friendly neighborhood healthcare worker. We do this by interviewing a healthcare professional or someone who works in the healthcare adjacent field each episode, asking questions that you want the answers to and answering questions you didn't know you had. I'm Joanna, a board certified music therapist and a licensed professional counselor in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm a white, straight, cisgendered female, and my pronouns are she, hers, and I am upset that we weren't invited to the Met Gala this year. Right? <laughs> Who was invited? Like a lot of people. We can like, go over it. <laughs> uh, like nurses and other people that have been praised? No. Oh, okay. I mean, Just they the, should be the praised. Use, yeah. Okay. And I'm Sarah, an LPC from Pennsylvania, transplant from South Jersey. I am a straight, cis, white woman, and my pronouns are she, her. And I had a panic attack in an urgent care waiting room yesterday. Oh, no. <laughs> it was the best setting possible, I'm she so said. Sorry. Non seriously. <laughs> it's okay. Actually, I was texting you after it. So you reaching out to me to ask me whatever you asked me was part of my come down. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I don't even remember what I asked you. I don't either, but thank you. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I spent 30 minutes one morning just looking at the Met Gala, like the people's outfits, because why not? You know? Yeah, they they usually bring it. Um, yeah, there. I don't know. A lot of money's put into it and things like that. I do not care, but it's also kind of like an art museum sometimes, right? Well, the Met like, is an art museum. Yeah. No, but I mean, like they're. <laughs> <laughs> but there is that why all of their outfits are ridiculous. Okay. Uh, I mean, Take there's all a back. theme. There's a theme. I don't know. Um, I mean, I could go over some highlights <laughs> if we need to. <laughs> I mean, yeah, just um, yeah. little Nas X had a huge robe on, then took it off, was wearing a full plated plated armor suit, took that off again, Mm-mm. and then was wearing a bejeweled uh, bodysuit. It's pretty cool. Frank Ocean had a green baby <laughs> with it, like a. Like a baby like doll. Like a doll, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds nice. Yeah. Uh, Billie Eilish dressed up as a princess. So that uh. way Oscar de la Renta would stop using like fur. Uh, so oh. That's nice. Thank you. Absolutely. Billy. From me specifically. Dear Billy. <laughs> Thank you Thank so you. much. Um, I'm trying to think what else. AOC wore a very cool dress that said Tax and Rich, <gasps> which is like kind of weird to wear to that i'm glad she wore it there yeah (laughs) yes oh victory 
I'm trying to think. I feel like there was one more because I like looked at these before we recorded so I could remember. Um, and also, this is going to definitely drop like way after the Met Gala. So, mm. <laughs> Green Babies will not be in season anymore. <sighs> yeah, unfortunately. It's certainly a shame. Yeah. Well, AOC is just like, I don't know. You ever like want a mentor that's a little younger than you oh and gosh. maybe is too busy? If I could like text her sometimes, <laughs> that would be so nice. If we could just play Lego Harry Potter together <gasps> and like, you know, suppress our guilt over supporting Harry Potter still because it's been ruined partially, but also well, Lego but play Harry Lego Potter. Harry Potter. Right. So there's no voiceovers in yeah. it. Uh, it. It's all just like grunting. But they got the grunting really good for the characters. <laughs> That's you, like, hitting a bunch of Lego blocks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting all the coins. Cody told me that he can't play that game with me anymore because I get too many coins. He said, you're not playing. You're That's just you're compulsively. But I was the... doing it, like, in the hallway where you don't gain anything. <laughs> <laughs> so it's essentially like walking into a garbage dump and just picking up trash and putting it in a trash bag. Like, that's the... <laughs> comparison I could <laughs> Christ. I feel like it adds to your overall score. Yeah, it gives you more coins that you can then buy <laughs> people with. Cody. Buy people Cody. Cody who's been in Cody who's been in where is he? What's it's a street in Philly. Um there are many streets. It's near here. East Falls though. It's one of your old oh, stomping Ridge grounds. No, 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 no. Kelly. I'm not gonna get it, but he's been Riddell. there all week and he's gonna be there all next week too. It sucks. Hmm. Um I'm gonna get maybe, it later. <laughs> maybe we can just like vision board us going to the Met Gala next year. Like the first yeah. time podcasters are there. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna wear some like I don't know, I'm gonna step it up and like wear like a like an anti-capitalism shirt and they're all going to be like did you drive a car here and i'll say yes i'm a fraud you be like no i used an uber i use an uber and i <laughs> and i requested a man and i didn't tip <laughs> good lord okay no like legitimately sorry to do you think that there's going to be a, or there was a time when the board of directors of uber was like should they be able to choose the gender of their of their drivers oh yeah oh, and the one yes, and the one yes, woman yes, on the yes, board yes. who's completely token was like no <laughs> <laughs> no can't do that. oh my goodness oh my goodness um how Very clean cool. are your floors you know they're clean, but I also realized okay. that I never, I think you, I think you know how dirty our floors are because you, you listen again. Yeah. I realized it today. I never have dirty floors. I have no housekeeping. What do you got? Okay. Well, this isn't like a real housekeeping. It's mm -hmm. just a, an idea from an, the time we talked about uh, Bill Paxton and uh, his... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why that... <laughs> And I just wanted you to know because I was confused Hot. about it, but his character's name in Titanic is Brock Lovett. So. <laughs> no. Yes. Who is he in Bill, Bill Paxton in Titanic? Because I was afraid that that was his character's name in Titanic, which is uh, which seems okay because Brock Lovett is like close to Bill Paxton. I mean, it's got the same vibe. I feel it now. Okay, well. <laughs> who, who was he in 
We were talking about Twister. Yeah, we were talking about Twister. The I guy that was like, my wife's a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> and I really like tornadoes. Ugh. I'm gonna get back into the saddle. What a horrible movie. <laughs> I do not remember him in Titanic. Who was he? He was the guy who was uh, piloting the the submarine into oh, the yeah. Titanic. You that's like remember, the beginning of the movie, right? Yeah, yeah, those actors, and then like when the old lady throws into the ocean in the end. Oh, <gasps> Brittany! Brittany, yeah. when did you get on the podcast? <laughs> Here she Welcome. is. <laughs> You're free. Another news. Yes. Um, okay. All right. Cool. So uh, stay tuned <laughs> after the break. <laughs> Bye. For our history lesson. Bye. Nice. And now it's time for our history lesson. The history lesson is compiled facts in the form of a narrative describing history, both good and bad, in order to give context for the field our interviewee works in. Today's sources include an article entitled Emergency Care, Then, Now, and Next mm. by, <laughs> by Arthur L. Kellerman and Renee Y. Hesia, Charlotte Ye, and Christine G. Morganti. Uh, the West Virginia Department of Education, and an article entitled Good Samaritans in Florence, Public Service in the Tradition of the Catholic Faith by Allison Zach, as well as Indiana Healthcare. Wait, IndianaHealth.care. Hmm. All right, trigger warnings for this today's episode. None. So enjoy, chuckle, <laughs> and learn. First, we will read and learn about the history of first responders. Cut to 1200 CE in Florence, Italy. The Misericordia di Firenze, Italy's first volunteer ambulance service is said to have begun in the 13th century. As the story goes, groups of porters who delivered goods for Florentine merchants began answering calls to transport the sick and injured in wicker stretches, stretchers for free between jobs. Whoa. It was a time of religious awakening in Italy. Before long, associations of volunteer rescuers began to appear in other regions, and an extensive network of Misericordia was born. They still operate to this day and provide emer and provided emergency services during World War II, Nazi Germany bombing, as well as the Great Flood of 1966. So in, when you see a little ambulance driving through Tuscany, it says Misericordia on it. And in Ooh. Florence, in the square, there is a giant line on the buildings in the center of the square that marks where the great flood was in 1966 and when you're standing there you're looking up at it it's crazy Whoa. so so they and if you're in standing in florence there is a long i forgot to look up the name of the river that runs through there but there were four or five bridges all but one was bombed during the nazi germany bombing so there was only one bridge they can get to go across ironically or the right word that isn't ironically is that the only bridge that wasn't bombed was the one that had all the merchant homes on it. All the merchant, uh, they had like stores there, like shacks. Yeah. Like you go buy meat and gold and all these things. Okay. Cut to 1487 in Malaga, Spain. 
The history of the ambulance begins in ancient times with the use of carts to transport patients. Ambulances were first used for emergency tra transport in 1487 by the Spanish forces during the siege of Malaga by the Catholic monarchs against the Emirate of Granada and civilian variants were put into operation in the 1830s. Advances in technology throughout the 19th and 20th century led to the modern self-powered ambulances. Cut to 1865 in the United States. EMS in America can be traced back to the Civil War area. Civil War era. All military personnel had to be examined by medical officers to qualify for duty. Also, ambulances were assigned based on the size of the regimen. Each ambulance team was trained in patient care to better take care of the soldiers. In 1865, Cincinnati incorporated the first civilian ambulance. Then in 1869, New York City advertised a 30-second response time and provided an Whoa. ambulance surgeon and a quart of brandy for their patients. Wow. 30-second response time? That seems you imagine? like not feasible. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the population of New York City was like or how many uh, other There just have to be like an ambulance vehicles they were. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. I also didn't believe that, but I did not take it out. Okay. During World War I, signal boxes were used by injured soldiers to assist medical teams in locating them in the field of battle, which is so cool. Medical teams also used electric, steam, and gasoline-powered carriages for transporting the injured. It was also the first war to utilize traction, splints, and other medical equipment. After the war, civilian ambulances carrying surgeons were equipped with radio dispatchers to better serve the community. I am noticing an absence of brandy, though. Mm, let's get that back. Get that back. In 1950s, United States. The, trans the transition to what we know as the modern-day EMS started as an offshoot of five different types of businesses. One was towing operators, one was the medical equipment companies, another was funeral homes, the fourth hospitals, and the fifth were fire and police departments. After many years of being unregulated, funeral homes began patient care and provided nearly half of the country's ambulances. John F. Kennedy declared that traffic accidents constitute one of the greatest, perhaps the greatest, of the nation's public health problems. It's not one of his most profound quotes, so yeah. <laughs> I have to say. I think and also I, like seatbelts were a part of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, well, I forget what decade they were invented, but car companies were definitely like, eh. Yeah. 1966. <laughs> Oh, yes, and we're going to hear from our guests when that was, which I'm very excited. Okay, I'm excited. Uh, in 1966, Lyndon B. Johnson, who uh, followed JFK, and the President's Commission on Highway Safety slash National Academy of Sciences declares the carnage of, quote, the neglected disease of modern society. And we will talk about this more later in our history lesson. Soon after, the National Highway Traffic Safety Act was adopted, which standardized EMS training, promoted state involvement, encouraged community oversight, recommended radio communication, and stressed a single emergency number, which is crazy. <laughs> that that yeah. I mean, everything that we utilize these days had to have been invented, but yes, ah. wild. Yeah. So in 1972, other federal initiatives were put into action that further helped define the EMS program. The Health Services and Mental Health Administration under the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare became the lead agency for EMS. Also, the physician responder program was implemented, which later morphed into paramedic programs and led to close physician supervision. 
The next year in 1973, the EMS Systems Act was passed. General Services Administration also introduced ambulance specifications. And in 1981, with the Consolidated Omnibus Budget Reconciliation Act, which consolidated funding into state preventative health block grants, eliminated funding under the EMSS Act, uh, reduced compliance with federal guidelines, and lastly abolished the federal lead. And lastly, abolished the federal lead agency. Flash forward to 1996, the EMS agenda for the future was drafted, which further connected. EMS with other medical professions. That same year, the EMS education agenda for the future was drafted. It provided recommendations for core content, scope of practice, and certification of EMS professionals. Pre-hospital emergency medical care has continually evolved and improved. The EMT has been acknowledged as a bona fide member of the healthcare team. Excellent training programs have been developed and a vital focus has been placed on continuing education. National standards have been established. Ambulance equipment essentials have been set. National accreditation of paramedic programs has been achieved and professional associations for the EMT have been organized. Let's delve into the history of emergency care. As recently as the 1950s, the quote emergency room was often just that, a hospital room reserved for emergency cases. The room was staffed by either inexperienced interns or rotating members of the hospital's medical staff, regardless of their training, expertise, or interest. Rising demand in the years following World War II quickly overcame the capacity of this dangerous approach to emergency staffing. Starting in 1961, small groups of practitioners stepped forward and offered to cover their hospital's emergency rooms full-time. In 1968, several of these pioneers banded together to establish the American College of Emergency Physicians. The first emergency medicine residency program opened its doors in 1970. As the number of specialists grew, they transformed hospital emergency rooms into comprehensive emergency departments that are capable of managing a wide range of life-threatening problems. The evolution of emergency care outside hospitals was equally dramatic. Prior to the mid-1960s, hearses frequently did double duty as ambulances, and in pre-hospital care, and pre-hospital care was minimal to non-existent. They also probably did some ghost busting. The turning point came in 1966 <laughs> when the National Academy of Sciences published Accidental Death and Disability, the Neglected Disease of Modern Society. Yikes. Yeah, we're talking about this again. The report's description of widespread deficiencies was a call to action for the public. In response, Congress passed the Highway Safety Act of 1970, which established the highway, National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Drawing on recommendations embedded in the National Academy of Science report, the new agency drafted a national curriculum to train emergency medical technicians, provided model state legislation to allow them to practice, and established grant, a grants program to jumpstart the creation of the modern emergency medical services. Between 1994 and 2004, emergency department visits grew by 26%, 26%. In the same period, America's hospitals closed 198,000 beds. The ED crowding that ensued became so severe that in 2003, hospitals turned away a half million ambulances per year, an average of one per minute. Studies confirm that crowded conditions degrade care and harm patients. Yes, well, yeah. 
Despite such compelling evidence and disturbing news accounts, many hospital administrators continue to turn a blind eye to the problem. Adverse economic conditions took a toll as well. When reports of, quote, patient dumbing, dumping came to light in the late 1980s, Congress passed the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, EMTALA, of 1986. This law requires hospitals that participate in Medicare to evaluate, stabilize the condition of, and if necessary, admit any patient who comes into the emergency department with an emergency condition, regardless of the patient's ability to pay. Although the law gave Americans a right to health care, it limited this right to EDs. Moreover, the hospitals and ED providers who treat these patients receive no financial support to offset the cost of uncompensated care. EMTALA was enacted to ensure access to care, but it may have reduced access instead. For example, instead of complying with EMTALA's provisions, by the early 2000s, many medical and surgical specialists were refusing to take emergency department calls or demanding an upfront stipend from their hospital to do so. Worsening ED crowding also hindered access to care for the insured and the uninsured alike. Over time, the burden of uncompensated ED care proved to be heavier than many hospitals could bear. Between 1990 and 2009, 27% of non-rural EDs in the United States closed their doors. Risk factors for closure included for-profit ownership of the hospital. Hmm, that didn't happen in Philly recently. A zero or mm-hmm. negative operating margin and a large and large numbers of impoverished patients. That actually did happen in Philadelphia recently. And one of the the largest uh, EDs in the middle of the city uh, was bought by a guy and then closed. So where we took classes there and Joanna interned briefly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for like a year. Mm. (sighs) Should we say the name? (laughs) Yeah, it was uh, Hahnemann Hospital. Okay. While the number of EDs declined, demand for emergency care continued to grow. The intensity and complexity of ED workups also increased. In the early days of emergency medicine, patients with worrisome symptoms were typically admitted for diagnostic screenings. Expectations shifted over time, and today ED providers are generally required to 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 complete the diagnostic workup in the ED to justify a patient's need for hospital admission. There is some evidence that more intensive management of patients in the ED may be blunting the growth of hospital admissions, which are 10 times more costly than the average ED visit. The growing intensity of ED care is taking a toll on ED providers. Because America's EDs are treated are treating more patients than ever and evaluating them more comprehensively, ED occupancy levels are rising dramatically. This translates into a heavier workload for ED doctors and nurses, and I'm sure even right now, it's insanely heavier. Yeah, there's there's definitely a mental health, well, there's a mental health crisis happening uh, for blanket for everybody, but there's also a higher mental health crisis for emergency personnel as well as veterinary emergency personnel Um, yeah fact not fun fact no all right well i'm excited to talk about eds and what it means to be a crisis clinician so stay tuned after the break as we bring our guest susan up nice Welcome back. Susan Rogendorf is a licensed clinical professional counselor in Illinois and a licensed mental health counselor in Iowa. 
She's the LGBTQ plus owner of Coughlet Counseling Services in the Quad Cities. Susan works with folks living with anxiety in her LGBTQIA plus community. She's also currently in certification to expand her work with the first responders grappling with anxiety as well as other life issues. And she's still at work in the ER part-time as a crisis clinician when she's not out in her garden or busy annoying her adult kids. Welcome, Susan. Thank you very much for that introduction and thank you for having me today. Well, you guys packed a lot in your history lesson. (laughs) Um, Yes. My grandmother um, was an EMT back in the 80s, and Mm -hmm. she and her husband had an ambulance business in one of our towns outside the Quad Cities. And um, a lot of the history you talked about, I already kind of knew because of her history with it. And I was a chatty child and I wanted to know things. And so she told me some of these things. And then I went back and kind of looked at it when I became an ER clinician as well. So you know, well done, you guys. I mean, that was a lot of information to pack in there. Um, one correction, though, um, the oh, name yes. of my uh, counseling service is Cofelt Counseling Co-felt. Services. Yes. It's easy to mispronounce. People do all the time. It's actually my grandmother's maiden name. Oh. And oh, that's because really nice. of the work she did and the help that she did for, you know, in the ambulance business, as well as being an EMT, and she was also in the Civil Air Patrol, um, I just... It was a way of honoring her and she did a lot for me in my life. So just wanted to correct you on that one. Oh, so yes, thank um, you. the thing that struck me <laughs> about this history was the brandy. And I'm thinking, okay, well, first <laughs> of all, you know, the, given the time that it is that you're going to have brandy, they're pretty much limited in their scope of medical care. So it's like, yeah, I really don't know what the hell's wrong with you, but have some brandy. You won't give a shit as much once you drink it. It, yes, it, be on it warms way. you. It's very sweet. I can oh, imagine absolutely. it was a pick me you know, up or of- knocking you out. <laughs> it's a fan, of, uh, you know, a fan of Brandy Alexander's. They probably didn't have yes. the ice back then, but you know, yeah, getting a little brandy. But then you got to wonder how many people were calling up just for the brandy benefits, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, sending some kids benefits. over to the ambulance saying, "Yeah, yeah, just tell them I got a headache or something." You know, yeah. we got a BB, we got a brandy benefits. Honestly, <laughs> no shame, no shame. Yeah, like, I think my leg is broken. I got it. <laughs> I have the mizima. Give me yeah. some spirits. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> All right, Susan, for uh, for our East Coast and West Coast and uh, other place friends, could you clarify what Quad Cities, what they I are? I know. I know one of the Quad Cities. Tell me. Come on. It, one is Davenport, that. Iowa. Yes. Rockport, Illinois. No. You know two. Oh, <laughs> oops. I only know one. I only, the only reason why I know one is because my family moved from Connecticut to there for a while in like the late 1800s and then moved mm-hmm. back to Connecticut um, so they were uh, Davenportians for a while. Well, you know, I, I'm sure it was it was a rollicking time back then here because it was a river town mm-hmm. and there was a lot of transport and marketing going on. So and it was also a very developing agricultural area after mm-hmm. they stole it from the Indians. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, I'm sure they were probably pretty busy out here when they were, you know, doing whatever your family were doing out here. But yeah, I don't um, know. Quad Cities is a misnomer because there's really kind of like five cities. Hmm. Um, <laughs> there's <laughs> Joanna, sorry. <laughs> oh, sorry, kind of, kind of. That's that. okay. There's East Moline, um, which most people, you know, don't 
really think about when we're naming off the cities. The main ones are Moline, Rock Island, Bettendorf, and Davenport. But East Moline is large enough that we kind of include that as well. Um, it's a large metropolitan area. We are, it used to be manufacturing heavy, but then all the manufacturers started closing down and moving overseas in the 80s. Um, I wish I could say it was a joke, but I mean, it was a serious line people used to say, you know, last person out of the quad city shut off the lights. Our economics mm -hmm. here were terrible. Mm -hmm. um, I was in high school when that was going on in the 80s. So, you know, I'm a bit of a dinosaur at 54 here. So you're going to get a lot of history that you didn't think you'd get otherwise. Um, it's now more of a service industry area. Uh, we have a lot of colleges and community colleges here. We have service industries like insurance. We also have banking. Uh, we've also got the medical. We've got two major hospitals and then we've got some smaller urgent care businesses, doctor's offices, things like that too. So that's what the Quad Cities is. That's so cool. I, and since you had brought up stealing the land from indigenous folks, can you also clarify what Two Spirits is? Because I had not heard of that before and I'm like embarrassed to say that, but I'd love to hear from you what that well, is. Well, I'm not an expert in it, so I'm not sure I'm the right person to talk about that. Okay. Um, I can only come in from, you know, I'm I'm a white female, cis female, uh, mm -hmm. identify as queer. Um, from what I understand, Two-Spirit is part of indigenous cultures. And I really, more than that, I don't know what to tell you because I mm -hmm. am not an expert in it. I don't work with anyone that identifies as that. Um, most folks mm -hmm. that I work with in private practice are, you know, what most people recognize as lesbian, gay, um, bi, trans, poly, you know, sex positive. That's kind of what I work with. So I okay. still have not met anyone who's two-spirit and identifies as that. I haven't worked with anybody that way. So I'm sorry, we're well, not a font of information. On no, no, I okay. totally, I just the fact that you're bringing the name to light and the, the, um, the identity to light. I think that's something we could definitely do a little deep dive into anyway, maybe mm -hmm. even have a guest come on to talk about it. So I think you. it'd be wonderful because, you know, I, I, some of my non-binary persons I've worked with, you know, had questions about it as well. And mm -hmm. we're all kind of like, I don't know. We don't even know anybody we can ask about that. So I think it would be wonderful to be able to have somebody to talk to. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. So Susan, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do either as like a, as a counselor or as an emergency uh, care cl clinician? Um, in my private practice first, that is mostly working with folks that have anxiety issues for everything from just everyday life events happening and they don't know how to handle it because what used to work for them doesn't work for them any longer and that could be straight cis to persons identifying as queer and persons of color white it doesn't matter um, i also work with persons who are first responders who have anxiety about themselves you know things aren't working well at home you know i've got my shit together at work but at home it's falling apart um, for those persons that are first responders, sometimes it may be work anxiety that I think I've got my shit together, but I don't feel like I have it internally pulled together. And I'm concerned because I'm afraid that's going to show up somehow um, to the point of sometimes questioning their ability to be the professional they've trained to be, no matter if it's brand new or if they've been in it for years. Um, I do work with some law enforcement folks you know, anxiety, again, from life events to maybe some issues with, you know, work satisfaction, things like that. 
for crisis clinician work, I am in the ER. It's part of the crisis stabilization unit. There's a, a few of them around the country and they usually are part of the ER and they're considered the mental health component of emergency rooms. So if you have someone coming in and it's not so much, you know, I'm, I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling depressed. A lot of times it's persons who have expressed suicidality. I want to hurt myself somehow. And they're brought in and they go through a triage process where they have a medical clearance to make sure they're okay, that they haven't done something to themselves prior to getting there. And then they come and see us in the crisis stabilization unit where we start unpacking some things and figure out what's going on. Why are you here? So that's kind of it in a nutshell. That is so vast and that is so impressive. Like what a, what a wide range of knowledge you need to have and you have probably gotten passed down in the family as well as just what a niche to care about that probably needs such high levels of care like we learned about in this history lesson. Mm-hmm. That's and so it's, cool. as you said, towards the end of that uh, history lesson, it's getting worse because with, you know, I, I was in the office setting before becoming a crisis clinician. So I was working in the administration as an office assistant and helping out. So I understand the back end of it with funding and hospitals not being paid uh, for readmitting for all kinds of stuff that Medicare, Medicaid won't pay for now uh, because their budgets are tight. So they're mm-hmm. going to cut off the funding to the hospitals um, and that gets passed down to the different departments. So then they have to economize, which for a lot of, for a lot of us in staffing, that means we don't have as much staff that we used to have or we could count on. Um, and that ends to the anxiety of what a lot of the professionals are going through right now. You know, I, it's hard enough being a professional in pre-pandemic levels but now it's insane. I mean, it, the amount of stress everyone is under right now, I'm surprised everybody is still capable of doing the things that they're doing and still being able to hold their families and their, and their outside work lives together, to be honest with you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely certainly tough to like know you're the only person there or like you can't call out because nobody will be there to cover or like you're the only person that can do this group or you're the only person that can do this job. And Mm -hmm. that's an immense amount of stress. You know, and and for our folks that are dealing with the medical component of the ER, it's really difficult for them in terms of trying to do everything they need to do with more patients than they usually have to handle. Uh, The sickness is more severe sometimes And then, like you said, if you don't have enough staff to have on call or backup, somebody has to pick up those hours. And that means the staff that are already on the payroll are going to be the ones that have to be tapped to come in and do those jobs Mm. or beds get closed. I mean, that's around the country. Yeah, definitely. And I, I mean, Joanne and I both come from pretty highly populated areas and then we lived in philly for years and joanna still lives there i I think the concept of like rural living and like you know like food deserts or even like hospital deserts is like can be a little foreign to us so thinking about like obviously we 
we went to school in Philly and the hospital that we attended classes in closed, but there were also four or five hospitals, you know, within three miles, not taking the same care, but there are other beds available. So I like, thinking about that is so scary. Thinking about just no options being left is so scary. And it's across the board. It's not mm -hmm. just the ERs, it's surgical units, it's mother mm -hmm. baby units, it's the mental health component. There's just not enough of us in the work that we do for crisis available. And like myself, it got to a point where I couldn't do it anymore. I just, I could not do the hours. I couldn't do the excessive stress of being at position, even though the reason why I'm still part-time is I love my work there. I really do. I love working with my team. I love working with the patients. It's just the stress really gets to you after a while. So that's why I went into private practice. And when you start having people drop out and you don't have a pool of talent to pull from to replace persons, then it gets even worse. It's hard. Yeah. And then on top of that, if you don't have staff, like I said, you start closing beds because you can't care for people mm -hmm. or you can't care for people safely. That, that is the operative word, right? Because mm -hmm. especially a lot of private hospitals will keep taking folks um, even when maybe they shouldn't and really cause harm to a lot of people that end up going there. Hmm. And that can be difficult. I mean, and then you have families that are upset because they have family members that are in need of care and there's just, there's no way to do that for them, mm -hmm. you know? And I think a lot of this just has to do with the healthcare system in general in the United States. Um, and I know this has been a topic of conversation for eons. You, you have such a huge component of our American society, our US society that goes without care because they can't afford it. Even those of us with insurance, you know, hell, I, I've got decent insurance. It's marketplace. It's a big insurance. It's expensive. Excuse me. It's expensive. And I have to think twice about actually going to the ER because mm -hmm. the deductible is so high. It would wipe out what little savings I have. And that's, you know, and I'm lucky I have savings. There are so many people out there that are living less paycheck to paycheck than ever before that can't afford it. So then if they do have to go to the ER and they don't have the money to pay, then the hospitals don't have money to pay. And then it's just the domino effect all over again. Yeah. I mean, yep. we, we, we also see like with ambulances too, people like, please don't call an ambulance. Mm -hmm. I can't afford it. Yeah. 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 And hospitals turning away certain ambulance companies too. I, I, I think that there is uh, any like private like you privatize something like this and there's going to be a there's going to be competition and there's going to be harm done mm -hmm. and i don't know of any that we're turning away honestly i, yeah, I don't think wonderful. we are mm -hmm. um i know that if you get to a certain point in hospitals if you have someone of a high acuity of care needed and your hospital doesn't have the staff or the rating to care for that high acuity trauma, um, it's called stabilize and transfer. Or if you have a full census, meaning your hospital is full and you can't take any more for whatever reason, then you have to stabilize and transfer. But then what happens when all the hospitals you could transfer to don't have the staff that you can transfer into and they're looking to transfer. Mm -hmm. That's where a lot of the problem comes in too. So then, yeah, everybody's stress gets jacked up even more. It's great. 
Yeah, speaking of stress, how has the pandemic affected your job day to day? How much swearing do I get to do? You can do as much swearing as you want. Yeah, we have not reached a cap yet to this oh, day. Let's see yeah, I think in the today. last yeah, I think in the last episode we were just like fuck 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 once. So, <laughs> just to like just like oh, I got to put the NSFW tag on it. Yeah, and that's so, right. That's fine. Um, Bring it it's on. Fucking awful. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> goddamn. Yep. You know, there is so much to be said about preventative measures that could bring us back down. And, you know, I don't really give a fuck anymore if you think it's real or not. All I know is that there are a lot of sick people and dying people. Mm-hmm. And I don't want that to affect my family and friends that have health issues that even with a vaccine, they're still at high risk. Um, and it's just part of that is what's making me so angry. It's like, this is, there's a lot we can do to prevent or drive down those numbers. And it's just, mm, yeah, getting mm-hmm. the anger thing, of, you know, and trying to keep it within context and not let it bleed over into things. I really have to pull back from news sources to that. I just, I can't, can't look at it as much. So it just, Maybe you can hear my voice because I'm really angry about that right now. But (laughs) every time we see somebody without a mask, I want to just run up and slap one of them on their face, you know, Mm -hmm. run some duct tape around their face and keep that on. (laughs) You know, if you won't do it for you, do it for me and my family who I want to protect. So it's just, and part of it too is worrying about those populations that are doing everything right and it's still going to badly affect them. Right now, it's more the anger than anything else right now that is making me kind of twitchy. No, it's making me really twitchy. Can I share something personal? I'm doing it anyway. I- <laughs> your show. You, you have my permission anyway. So. Thank you. I, uh, Joanna knows this, I've changed therapists recently and it was a very good change, but last year I was not feeling very supported and I was hesitant to bring things up because my therapist was not of, she was not educating herself as she grew in her years, she was not trying to learn, which you need to learn. You need to, you need to do that these days. You needed to always do it, but you really like, there's no excuse now because everyone's telling you to. But my Mm -hmm. point is I never brought up my stress about politics and human rights and things last year because I didn't want her to reject me. And I was so fragile that I, I didn't think I could handle it, but I, I mustered up all my courage and on Monday, I was like, I'm going to talk about capitalism today. <laughs> and she was like, let's go. <laughs> and I just like, I spouted off for about 25 minutes, rage crying. And then she said, you need to figure out a way to be involved in activism. And you need to surround yourself with people that agree with you. Not not to be in an echo chamber, but to just not, you do not need to be fighting bigoted people all day long and then not going home and getting support well not literally home for me because my husband and I have the same virtually identical views but she said you need to be talking to people that are feeling the same amount of anger and you need to be you need to be figuring out ways to organize and do something with it because this festering is not good and it I was like fine (laughs) fine but you know what though it's our, our next part of the conversation was because of the economic system we're in, it makes it almost impossible to do anything extra. We have so much stress and we have so much on our plate that even getting into activism is hard, you know, 
but I, I did really dig that idea of just talking to people that were as angry as you. And I, and here we are. <laughs> <laughs> and you invite this me in and I wonderful timing, <laughs> wonderful timing, Susan, because I, Joanna and I have definitely, yep. We've had like hour long conversations about like what's wrong. Just unmasked fury and like, what on earth do you do with it? And, you know, since we're talking about your niche, it's, there's more passion coming and it's, but when I start talking about, when I start start talking about the working class, I'm my, my, I get like the bottom of a, like a cartoon thermostat (laughs) and I just like explode. So I'm, I think we're with you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and it's, it's unfortunate there's so many things we could do and yeah, it's going to take work and yeah, we're going to dismantle archaic systems that have been in place for so goddamn long mm-hmm. that don't belong there anymore. And yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm a Gen Xer and I'm at the leading edge of Gen X at being 54 and mm-hmm. tail end of boomers ahead of me. And that doesn't mean that all boomers drank the Kool-Aid and think all the same. I mean, I'm friends with a lot of them that understand that things need to change and it can't keep up what their parents have done. And for those in Gen X, we're just like, you know, we thought there was so much we thought we could do and we thought it was going to change and it hasn't so far, but that doesn't mean we don't want it to. And mm-hmm. that we're still not looking for ways to do that. And also, I'm sorry you had a therapist you didn't feel comfortable with. That must have been awful. And I'm oh, glad sucked. that you went ahead and found somebody else. I mean, especially when you feel fragile, you need somebody to support you and be there because, you know, you're right. You know, I'm 54, but I'm trying to learn all the time. And I make jokes about, you know, with my patients about, you know, you know, that ticky tacky thing. I know what the hell it is. Right. <laughs> but it, it makes it easier to kind of relate that. Yeah. I know I'm old, but I'm willing to learn about these things. And it makes I all think, the difference. I do. I believe that. And I mm-hmm. think that's part of rolling that all together from what you said is just making sure you're educated and understanding that as a therapist, you need to be that safe place. And then also offering to your clients. If what you have to say to me feels uncomfortable to say to me, please let me know. So then we can discuss why you feel uncomfortable and see if it's a realistic concern of yours. And if it is, and I truly do not feel comfortable discussing that with you, we'll talk about referrals to people who will be a better fit for you. That's what my job is as a goddamn Mm -hmm. therapist advocating for the safety and the mental stability of my clients. And unfortunately I've run into too many therapists that don't think like I do. And I've had a couple of them in my past and it's just, I don't want to repeat that mistake that they gave to me. So again, I'm sorry you had that on you that you got out of there and you found somebody to support you. Yeah, I was talking to Joanne about it every day for like a month (laughs) and her and like four other people. Obviously, I knew I needed to make a change, but her and a couple other people were just like, it's time. (laughs) If anything, for my own sanity. (laughs) And it's okay to break up with your therapist if it's not working. Yes, please do so. Know your rights as a client. Just Google, just Google counseling ethics. Mm -hmm. And that, that 45 minutes to 60 minutes, that's your time. You should feel complete mm-hmm. and supported during that time. It shouldn't be something that you dread. You know, we talk about relationships with our clients and how to have healthy ones. If they can't have a healthy one with their therapist and the therapist is not willing to be that bridge or, and give that warm handoff to referrals that would be a better fit, maybe you should just not do your job anymore. 
I know, know radical idea. It's but. not the worst thing in the world to, to like let other people just take over. It's not, you know, no. if, if you don't want to learn, it's sure. Okay. But don't like muddle up the waters. You're, yeah. You're yeah. bloodying the gene pool of therapists and it's not good. You know, there's not enough sharks in the ocean here to be able to clean up bad ones. And I mean, for fuck's sake, it is not a, a, a popularity contest. That's what I tell my oh, clients my all the God. time. Because honestly, I'd win because my mohawk is fucking awesome. It really but is. Really it really awesome. is. <laughs> I, I, and I hope that the picture we have of you does it justice when we advertise this episode. I think the one I sent you, it should, where it's like a mile high. It's fabulous. Nice. Um, <laughs> but the simple fact is, and honestly, it isn't a popularity contest. I want my clients to be safe. I... I have been there. I went through therapy for off and on for 10 years. Um, I'm seeing a therapist again because I want to make sure that I'm staying on an even keel at my baseline. That's the least I want for my clients. And mm -hmm. if I can help you find someone who is a better fit for you and I am not that person, let's start talking. Let's start reviewing your options and let's get you to that person so that you can get on your journey of healing. That's what it's supposed to be about. That's my version of what a therapist should be. That will be that will be a quote for the episode. Those beautiful. Thank you. Thank you for coming to my TED talk. <laughs> and we're done. This kind of segues <laughs> very nicely into our next question, which is like, how does your personality or how is your personality represented in the work that you do? Oh Lord. Um, <laughs> I think for you know, from the comments I've gotten from my clients and my patients, they tell me that I'm pretty much just open. You know, um, I don't swear when we first have sessions because I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. Okay. Again, being the therapist, you offer a safe space. And if that means a person is uncomfortable with strong language, I'm not going to use it. They open the door with swear words. I let them know that gives me entree to use my swear words, you know, and I tried to match intensity levels because again, I don't want to freak them out or make them feel uncomfortable, but you drop the, the F bomb or the MF bomb. I am in it all there. <laughs> so um, I think the reason why it works well with my clients is because I attract that kind of personality in people too, with their anxiety. They want someone who isn't you know, well, first of all, I got the goddamn mohawk, right? And that's on my website, you know, and that is your first clue. This is not going to be your typical Freudian in a suit, sitting back with pad and pen telling me about your mother. Thank God. You know, we always know it's mom's fault anyway, you'll get over it. But <laughs> they get that view of who I am. You know, I'm queer, I'm fat, I'm over 50, I've got a mohawk and I have no fucks to give. Mm -hmm. about traditional ideas of what a therapist should be. You know, um, I am all about ethics. I'm all about HIPAA. And I'm all about making sure my clients are safe. Absolutely. But beyond that, I go where my clients are. If they're going to be sweary and upset, I'm there for it. If they're going to be quiet and they have more gentle ways of expressing things, I'm for there for that too. But I also warned them, I'm not going to sugarcoat shit. I will tell you exactly when I think I need to call you out on your shit. But I'm also going to be there to hold you when you want me to, when you're dealing with some of the deeper things that scare you to death. And a client told me a couple of years ago that the reason they like talking to me was that because even though I am fairly 
unvarnished out there that they feel that I'm very strong that when they did come to a point in session that it was getting very vulnerable, I could be strong enough to hold both of us in that room and in that space and keep them safe. And I think that's why my personality works well in the work that I do. Um, <laughs> in the ER, well, <laughs> I see everybody from someone who has thought about suicide to attempted suicide to persons who have anger issues who are brought in by police on petition, family members who bring them on petition, they're angry as hell and they're swearing at me. And, you know, I just kind of look at them and I'm like, are you done? Nice. What the fuck does that mean? I mean, is your mouth done running? Because I have questions for you and you're not gonna answer them for me. And that may or may not get you out of here any sooner if you're gonna keep throwing a tantrum. Um, one guy charged me and I stood there because I've been married three times. He's got to try harder than that, whatever. <laughs> and he just like, fuck you cunt. I'm like, okay. So your vocabulary is limited. Are you done? <laughs> and he just kind of looked at me and said, what does that mean? It means you sit your ass down so we can talk because I'm not going to sit here and listen to you blow off. It means nothing to me. But I got a petition here that actually looks really good and can hold you here for up to 24 hours till somebody sees you to determine whether you go home or you go inpatient. So Boston Yard Court, dude, fuck you, I'm gonna sit down. Great, let's get to it. Why are you in my ER? What is going on? How can I help you? It, it, open, it opens them up, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that also, you kind of, for me, it kind of got built up in the ER about not being scared to meet that client where they were. Um, but again, I don't open it by swearing at them, but I won't take it. Mm -hmm. And I think they know that as well. And again, I think because language, it projects things and the tone and the use of the word, you know, from saying to a friend you really care about, <laughs> fuck you. You know, you know what that means mm -hmm. to someone who is threatening to throw a punch at you yelling, fuck you. I mean, that's aggressive. That is panic alert. Your, your paranormal symptom or your parasympathetic system is off the normal baseline. It is jacked up and it's ready for battle. Mm -hmm. So I think that also kind of developed with my personality of no more fucks to give, because I want to be there to make sure that that patient, even though they're angry and they're upset, I know they're not really mad at me. They're mad at the whole system. They're mad at whoever threw them in the cop car. They're mad at whoever put them in the hospital that they have to deal with this bullshit. And yeah, they probably got other things going on, but right now they just want to be angry at somebody and I'm that person. So I don't know, maybe it did answer your question for you. I think that's how my personality yeah. plays into the work that I do. Now, that's not to say everybody is like me because a lot of my crew in the crisis unit, they are so calm and so matter of fact. And, you know, I, I admire them <laughs> because I wish I could be like that. But, you know, it's the reason why my kids call me Godzilla because, you know, zero to 60 in a heartbeat. You know, because somebody loaded the dishwasher the wrong way, which I totally cop to, absolutely. But, you know, it's, my it's, daughter... To interrupt you, it's monstrous when people do it incorrectly. So it's, every, every response <laughs> is warranted. 
load it correctly. (laughs) Husband of mine. (laughs) Which is why my kids know they just put the dishes gently in the sink and get the hell out. So um, my, my daughter said, what did she say to me one time that it would be nice to have a warning system like Godzilla does with the spine that lights up as it goes into breath mode. Fun fact, I am a huge Godzilla fan. So (laughs) my daughter wishes I had the spine that lit up before the atomic breath came out. But, you know, like I told her later, I said that would work against me, though, when I'm working in in the ER setting, because then people would know that I'm about to go off where, you know, I can pretty much keep a straight face until it's like, "Ah!" (laughs) that plays to my benefit, too. So, you know, it's just... A lot of all of this is just about making sure that it's always about the patient. It's always about the client. I may have a temper, but I also know it's not about me. It's about them. Really, why are you here tonight? Why why did the police drag you in here? Why do I have a petition on here that has four people telling me the same thing about you? And you're telling me that's not true. Got them. You know, why, why are you telling me everything's fine, but I've called the arresting officer I've called the family members and they're all seeing the same thing. They won't witness the same thing. You're going to be pissed, but you'll be alive when I place you inpatient against your will. If you're not willing to do it voluntarily and work with your care team. Can I talk about my favorite parts about that whole answer? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. If anyone ever says no, I'm just going to have to be like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> And the Charlie Brown musical playing background. I way back in the in the beginning of the answer, Susan, you said just like being like a fat therapist. And I think every every client I come in that is just healthy at any size or happy at any size that says another doctor told me I need to lose weight and that's why my health is bad. And there's no indicator of their weight being a problem. I, I, I like it boils my blood. And it's one of the it's one of the like final ways that we are still okay with oppressing people is this like ridiculously unearned (laughs) unearned uh it's very late I don't know what word I'm thinking entitlement to just pass judgment on people for their size Mm -hmm. and it's nonsensical and I'm very I'm really glad that you provide a space for probably like a lot of folks who just need someone just one member of their treatment team not saying you need to lose weight and you'll be happier I know Fuck that. BMI should be Fuck burnt it. to the ground. I thank you. Yes, I agree. BMI Down with BMI. Being, I, th- I'm going to take this platform. BMI is being used incorrectly. The way it Ooh. was designed was about large population studies. It wasn't meant for fucking individuals whose weight is higher than it should be. You know, and it, it's like, why are we? Because insurance companies love it. That's why. Because doctors love it because they can stick something on you and say, you know, I cannot tell you the number of times that I've walked mm-hmm. in. And it's like, well, you know, you wouldn't have this, this, and this if you weren't fat. It's like, fuck you. I had that before I was fat. Yep. You and know also, why didn't you swimmer. ask that? I was a varsity swimmer since I was in sixth grade. Mm-hmm. And I still had that issue. Swimming miles and miles and miles a day. And, and suddenly now it's an issue because I'm, I'm older and I'm fat. No. It has nothing to do with the weight. So yeah, no, I agree with you on that one. BMI yeah. should be burned to the ground. Down with that. Can I speak on this personally? As if we're all asking permission. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, as someone who has struggled with 
their weight in the sense of what society thinks their weight is and who has just been disappointed over and over again at doctor's offices and hanging their self-worth on what number is on the scale. Like it is such a toxic way to be. I'm working right now really hard to be anti-diet, but it's just like so ingrained in everything that I do that it's like heartbreaking um to see where it comes from i don't know what yeah, my sorry, point Joanna, is that, this. that is hard and my heart goes out to you thank you my mom put me on my first diet when i was seven because i had a belly when i was seven years old and she was a model she was gorgeous but that was the start of decades of punishing my body having bulimia in high school um i'm sorry i'm sorry that you go through that it's it's yeah. wrong and you know, like I tell all my family, friends, colleagues, clients, if I could go along and punch people in the throat for you who say that you're fat because, and this is your problem, I'd be happy to go along, but I don't look good in orange and I don't want to be anybody's prison bitch. So it's, well, just, it's, it's I mean, it's so hard because I've been restricting for so long without even knowing, because that is what our, you know, that's normal. You mm -hmm. know, there's how many, and I don't, it's to the point where like, I don't know when I'm hungry anymore because I've tuned out to the signal from my body. And instead of listening to my body, like when I have to pee, I pee. When I have to burp, I burp. I don't, I can't recognize when I'm hungry anymore because I've just been suppressing it for so long. And it's literally gotten me nowhere. So I'm so sorry, Joanna. It, it is, it's horrible. You know, mm -hmm. please don't laugh, honey. It's it's hard, I, and, it, I, and it and it my, feels bad. My laughter is anxious laughter, and also recognizing where I am now and being happy that I at least am addressing this. Good. Oh, I just yeah. started intuitive eating with a, a licensed dietitian who is nothing but intuitive eating, and it's hard. It really is, and you know, good for you about trying to pull back some control into your life and just be you instead of, and I, and I'm going to challenge you. It's not normal. This, this diet industry is oh, not, no, normal. It's not normal. It's the perceived ideal is what it is. And it's wrong. You know, billions and billions of dollars are made off of people's low self-esteem and self-worth because of what they look like. Fuck diet culture. Yeah. Call to action to unfollow any YouTuber that has reduced belly fat in their, uh, in their titles of any of their videos or yoga instructors. Do it now. I did it. There was a lot of them. Really? CTA. I mean, maybe that'll be on my dress when we go to the Met Gala next year is like, fuck diet culture. Fuck uh, diet culture. <laughs> Joanna, you're the best. I'd love to see that. Yeah. Absolutely. So now like we have to go. Cause like, Fine. yeah, I'm going to wear something petty. <laughs> Maybe I'll just wear a shirt that says Petty Betty. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Good Lord. I'm glad we brought that up. I've been like fuming about fat phobia for a while. And I'm I'm happy to talk. Joanna's Joanna's one of my favorite people, and it makes me my blood <laughs> boil to think of the world. Oh, I'm gonna move on. All right. Okay. <laughs> nice job, friends. <laughs> All right. Why are you a therapist? What drew you into doing what you're doing? Well, if you ask my daughter, she says it's because I get paid to tell people what to do. <laughs> <laughs> Does she talk not... to my family too? <laughs> because <laughs> She said, you're always telling people what to do and they wouldn't listen to you. And now they have to listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> Read you like a book. <laughs> <laughs> Which I tell my daughter, I love you, but fuck 
you. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> you know, and then I have to remind her as a therapist, I, I can suggest things to them. And the only time I tell people about what they should and shouldn't do is when they're in danger of hurting themselves or hurting other people. That's, that's where I get to tell them no, or, you know, we're going to do something different. Um, joking aside, I, it was when I was in therapy and it got to a point after a couple of years and I, I loved my therapist and she was amazing and I miss her. Um, but she's retired now. And, uh, we were talking about what I wanted to do for a future career. And I had been an adult literacy tutor and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. They were usually first or second generation um, immigrant families. Uh, There were persons who did not do well in high school that just got passed along. So I loved doing that. And I I don't know how we actually got to talking about it. And when my therapist, can I say your name? Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Her name is Linda Jones. Um, and she was, she was with one of the hospital systems through an EAP system that I got into with her. And she mentioned that had I thought about doing therapy as a counselor, <laughs> I remember her exact words, which was, I don't want to listen to a bunch of people whine to me for an hour, how it's their mother's fault. <laughs> She's like, um, when have we ever done that in here? Well, there's been a couple sessions. She goes, seriously. I said, okay, no. And she says, let's talk about the different types of therapy that's out there that you could be a counselor. And I'm like, right. So when they told my daughter about that, she did the same thing. What? <laughs> you a counselor? <laughs> oh. Because again, it's the whole fuck you thing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I did some research and I started reading about it. And I thought, you know, because I want to help people. You know, that's why I did the adult literacy tutor. Um, I, if I can leave one person feeling better about their lives and being able to improve it somehow through their own, through their own motivation, through their own energies, then I have not left the earth a wasted piece of human being. I want to, I want to help somebody help themselves. And being a therapist just seemed like a really good idea. I'd love to go back to tutoring again. Um, that's in the near future, I hope, as I get a little bit older. But right now, it's more just about being in crisis and helping people feel a little bit of hope. Um, it's about being in private practice and letting people know that, you know, what somebody told you was just their thought or their opinion. That doesn't mean it's true. Let's talk about how you think. Let's talk about how you feel. Let's, let's, let's figure out what you want to do with your life. You know, are these goals for the job you're in, are they truly yours or were they like overlaid on top of the other expectations you had as a child and you moved into that because it's just something you don't want to disappoint your family. And I mean, there's so much there to help people feel better about themselves. And then in turn, it's that whole ripple cliche about if you help them they will in turn, some of that good energy gets rippled out to other persons. And, that, and that's what I'm hoping it does. Um, whether it really does or not, I don't know, but I would like to think that it does. But that's why I became a therapist. I just, I want to throw out good energy. God knows I got enough bad karma to burn off. <laughs> Susan, I'm, I'm so glad you talked about the, the ripple effect because I'm going through the DBT workbook mm-hmm. now. And it talks about just choosing your higher power, whatever it is. And an example was given of, 
the connection be- between human beings. And I was like, holy shit, that's it. <laughs> because I'm always, whether it's our nervous system or, you know, our shared nervous system, our shared unconscious or our, the vibrations, whatever language you want to use, we are all connected. We use that, we weaponize it to harm each other or we, we, we monetize it or we use it to be kind and we use it to lift each other up. And that's like, that's my higher power. I really, so I'm so glad that you brought that up. <laughs> and it's, it's such a cool thing to like, have that be a secondary gain for yourself that you're just, you're putting it out there and it's gonna, it's likely it's going to come back or it's just going to go to someone else who needs it. Why the hell not? You know, it used to be like my grandmother said, no, um, she was hugely influential in my life. Um, I'm going to get a little teary eyed because I miss her so much. She Mm -hmm. developed Alzheimer's and then um, passed away from complications of Alzheimer's back in 2014. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I miss her a lot. I'm not sorry I'm crying. I'm sorry I'm interrupting the flow here of the conversation. Um, But she would tell me, you know, if something went missing, if somebody had taken something without asking her or just took it, um, and I would get angry. And she would she would turn to me and say, Susan, they, they probably needed it more than we did. It's okay. You know, and I'm not big into any religion. I'm an atheist. After studying religions in my undergrad, going through my own experiences with religion. But my grandmother, if you're going to have the epitome of a Christian female in the United States, my grandmother was that. She walked the walk, she talked the talk, she always turned the other cheek, she always tried to think the best of everybody, which is why, you know, she means a lot to me, because God knows I was a shit to her to so many, for so many years of my teen years, right? She still thought the world of me, she still thought the best of me. And because of that, I believe that what you said is true, Sarah, is that if I don't get that energy back, that's okay, because maybe there's somebody out there that's going to receive it who needs it so much more than I do. I think that extended our flow perfectly, Susan. (laughs) I think that's where we were heading. Thank you for sharing that about your grandmother. That's beautiful. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean when you were talking about like the, the good kind of Christian, you know, just just spreading kindness and no, no agenda. And she knew she was human and she knew that she had preconceived notions and she had prejudice and bias because she grew up a a white woman in the Midwest (laughs) and she tried so hard to overcome those things and understand civil rights and human rights and women's rights. And yeah, I miss her a lot. She was, she was a wonderful person. She sounds amazing. She also drove me crazy because she wanted to put bananas in those little tiny plastic produce bags because it protected the bananas. So there you go. There's the two sides of my grandmother. That's nonsense. <laughs> That's nonsense. <laughs> so she was a complicated being, my grandmother. Let me tell you. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I have to tell this one story about her real quick. Please, um, please. She, um, when she was developing her as Alzheimer's, she was still somewhat active. She's still living at home. And I would take her grocery shopping because she couldn't drive any longer. She had problems with glaucoma in her eyes. So I would take her to the grocery store. And if there was somebody around her age range, she was in her late seventies, early eighties, pushing a cart, just moseying down the grocery aisle, right? I would be talking to her, look over to get something for her. And my grandmother is racing the other old person down the aisle. <laughs> every single time and it's like where are you grandma what are you doing I, I gotta get ahead of them 
I didn't realize it was a drag race. So what <laughs> with me, Susan? <laughs> hey, you go get your bananas in a bag. <laughs> <laughs> She's gonna get the last bag. No, I can't. That's wonderful. Exactly. So there, you know, there's there's both sides. My grandmother was a wonderful being that she had her own idiosyncrasies, and I loved her for it. So, That's so but, cool. and that was, and I, and I think that was also probably another reason for becoming a therapist. You know, I saw the good that she did, and I, I think I wanted to embrace that too. And then when I decided to name my business, it was definitely going to be to honor her. And my great grandmother too, her mother, because you know my great grandmother did a lot to help people, even when she didn't have a lot to help them with. So, sounds like two immensely influential, amazing women. Yeah. Strong as hell, let me tell you. And I come from good stock. Nice. I'm 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 steering us another way, sort of. Uh, but what are some resources that you think are important for people to know about? Um, there's so many because of so many different people that I work with. I think with the LGBTQ population, um, at least in the Quad Cities, you can go to the Project of the Quad Cities, which gives medical care and resources for our community. Um, there's Clock Inc. that provides a community center for youth as well as other persons that are in our community that need a support group. They have all ages, they have all kinds of events. Mm -hmm. um, there's also um, Pride of the Quad Cities that also provides resources for the LGBT community. Uh, the University of Iowa has an LGBTQ clinic that does everything from routine medical care to transitional services for persons with their gender, gender identity. Um, there's also different LGBTQ clinics that are run through different hospitals. You would have to Google their website to see what's going on there. Um, but that happens around the country, not just here in Iowa, Illinois, Quad Cities. Um, a lot of places now are recognizing that people want persons who are familiar and supporting and validating in medical care for persons who do not fit the heteronormative that's out there. For persons that are first responders, I think of my uh, law enforcement officers, correction officers, anybody that has to deal with any of that. There's a lot of really good resources out there that talk about mental health that have no connection to their department. So it won't be seen as something that, um, you know, if they want privacy, they can find it that way. And I have it listed on my website. There's several of them. Um, and those, like I said, provide mental health services outside of their department. So it's nothing that, you know, they have any fear about privacy being violated for them. Even though we are all locked down tight with HIPAA, these are the organizations that can help out too. Um, for ER personnel, um, EMS, it's kind of the same thing of reaching out for help. They, I haven't come across anything for specifically for EMS and ER personnel in terms of like lifelines, crisis lines and that, um, there's always the suicide prevention lifeline. That's a big, you know, a big help for a lot of persons. NAMI has a lot of different support services for persons, no matter where you come from. I think they're the biggest ones that collect all the information about resource organizations for persons out there. Um, checking into your insurance company, if you have luckily enough to have insurance and see who's accepting new clients as a therapist and go find somebody to talk to. 
um, and I've said this over and over again, and I will continue to say it, look for a therapist that's willing to talk to you about what you're looking for, what you need to see if you're gonna be a good fit. Um, I went through that myself. I shied away from persons that were not willing to talk with me, give me 15 minutes, or at least give me a questionnaire to see if we're a good fit. It was just make a session. Oh, I, I don't know you and I, I'm not getting much from your website. So I'm, I'm gonna pass. Thank you very much though. Um, ask them questions. You know, this is your time. You should feel safe and you should understand what it is that they specifically work with. And if it's not in those areas of concern for you, find somebody who is. You need to find somebody you can trust so you can be open and vulnerable during those, hopefully those sessions you'll get to where you get to the heart of the problem. And sometimes that heart is broken and, and you need somebody pretty strong to hold that and you in a safe place so you can work through it. Amazing. That is, Thank you. That's perfect. And I want to add to that too, on zencare.co, you can request 15 minutes to talk to the therapist. You can just say, I want to book this time from you. And inclusivetherapist.com as well as Therapy Den also have little areas you can click to see if they offer the 15-minute consultation. I am you need of, that. <laughs> I'm a part of Inclusive as well as Therapy Den and also Included Health is one that is specific oh. to LGBTQ. I do offer 15 minutes to talk to persons about what they're looking for and whether I'm going to be a good fit or if I know persons who would be better for them. Um, and, you know, they can book through my website and everything else, but I do have to, because you guys are in Philadelphia, that mm -hmm. um, it has to be Iowa, Illinois. That's the only two licenses yeah. I have. Yeah, so. Gotcha. Well, we will certainly be hashtagging all of Iowa and Illinois. So <laughs> we bring in attention. And, uh, you know, I appreciate it when people are shopping around, like, thank you for doing that. That's really great. I think more people should. Yeah. And I, that should be something that's normal. Instead mm -hmm. of, you know, just book the session. Uh, I don't, hell, I have to try out different eggs to figure out which brand I like. You know, this is significantly more important than the eggs I eat. Okay. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's a big problem with large group practices as well, that they are just aiming to fill up everybody's caseload rather than finding a good fit both for the therapist and for the clients. And that can lead to a lot of burnout. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, you know ask questions, make sure that you're getting a good fit and that you feel like you can kind of get into a groove with that therapist that you kind of like. I love it. Yes. Do you have any questions for us? What is it that you like guys? I mean, I've heard your, your podcast and I, and I really love the interaction you have with your guests, but what do you guys get from having persons come in on your show? So much, so much. I mean, being well, that, able that to... That isn't good enough. Like, like I told no, my I clients, know. a nice truck with a broad broom. Get the little one out. We're going to do some pointillism. Come on. Um, um, go ahead, sir. I like when people think Joanna and I are funny. <laughs> yeah, because y'all are not I... at all. <laughs> and I like... Italian pronunciations. You know, those were, those were but it was right. Opinion. It was right. I love connecting I at first I loved connecting with our therapist friends and just people that were in our circle and I love I love connecting with therapists just on social media and just like learning about how we're all dealing with the same stuff but in such a different way but also the same way and I really like learning things and I love I like learning things from the history lesson and I also just love getting like loads of knowledge from whomever we bring on to just like I, I've talked about things that I 
from guests that we've interviewed in session oh with gosh, clients no, before. It's so cool. I, it's, it's just a resource. It's another resource for us. And it's also really funny and we can be dumb together and but also yeah. really smart. So that's my answer. <laughs> I think Sarah stole all of my answers. Um, gotcha. I would just say it's like extremely validating as a person and as a therapist, just to hear from other therapists and connect outside of the small circle, like realizing how small my circle is and like expanding it larger. That has been really nice. Um, and like knowing that friends and family are listening and like they're gaining knowledge too, that makes me feel like really good. I'm glad to hear that. Cause I think that's what appeals to me too, is when you guys are talking to other therapists and, and that just validates myself as a therapist and some of the things I'm going through and makes me feel a little less isolated sometimes, but also you're providing education for the broader community to see what it's like to be a therapist. You know, I talked to everybody as a first responder that they have a hard time that people see them for their uniforms they don't mm. see them for the human beings and i mm. think that's helpful what you guys do in your podcast is that you bring the human beings out instead of us just standing behind our desk pretending to be freud or you know carl rogers or whoever you want to be so um thank you for doing that yeah absolutely we are we are not your typical older white male therapists we <laughs> <laughs> Oh, all right funny you may funny. not be smoking a cigar right yeah <laughs> i um, mean i will be in 10 minutes now i'm just playing <laughs> i'm gonna eat another piece of pie that i made i mean oh i'm gonna have today, two also. more cookies that's nice sorry <laughs> like a full pie that's a streusel topping pretty proud of it oh. um oh my god why would you share that and then i can't have any pie that's fine. I'm happy for you. Thank you. Don't worry. It's one of those you. times when I should have pulled back. <laughs> Bye. Um, <laughs> uh, speaking of food, <laughs> this is my favorite question to ask. Uh, Susan, what is your favorite breakfast? That's hard because when I was younger, it was everything. I would eat everything. Mm. Um, as I've gotten older, I've been tested, I have celiac disease, and it really kind of reared its ugly head this year, and I, I have to be careful. So I think pre-celiac, when I was 20 and bendy and cute and juicy and wonderful, I would say birthday cake. Leftover birthday cake was my favorite breakfast food. Uh, my favorite breakfast food now is just about anything you can throw the spicy chili crisp. It's a Chinese hot sauce. Mm. anything I can throw that on that's my favorite breakfast can I say the best thing is when you're at a restaurant you're like I'm too full for dessert ordering dessert getting home you're like I'm too full to eat still eat it and then in the morning eating it for breakfast it's the best thing always and it's, and it's in all its containers like the chocolate sauce is in one little container and you get to put the whipped cream on the other container yeah absolutely that's not my yeah that's great Joanna that's that's yeah, a good I mean, plan hearkening back to what I talked about breakfast was something that I restricted a lot so I'm like rediscovering breakfast like cereal who oh, knew yeah. that's a thing <laughs> that I love <laughs> but what's really upsetting is that my favorite cereal is no longer available it's not discontinued but it's just like not being made like what there's a it? it's um crackling oat brand Oh, okay. Which is like cookies, but it's fine. Mm. 
And uh, I just used to like in my dorm room, there was like a perfect spot next to my bed in the wall where you could just like put a box of cereal and I would just like lay there <laughs> eating the crackle no brand. Um, like a Roman emperor on your bed yes. eating crackle no cereal. On my, on my um, like unfolded clothes because I never folded my clothes. I was just like part of my bed then. Well, that's because you didn't have staff to help you out. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, please bring back crackle no brand. <laughs> That'll be the other side of my dress. Should we should we tag the, the guy? Mail. Should we tag the guy from Survivor and ask him to bring back yeah. that cereal? Uh, Jeff Probst, please bring back Cargillano Brand. Make it, Jeff one of the, make it one of the sponsors of the newest season of Survivor. Please make Joanna's dream come true since you so coldly ignored and rejected her, despite us tagging you multiple times. That'll be on the other side of my Met Gala dress. Jeff Probst, oh, where are you at? Oh my God. <laughs> he's gonna like put out a, he's gonna put something out against us soon yeah i know <laughs> it's not great protection at least. Yeah, yeah well yeah, so yeah. here's the other thing i learned about Jeff Rose, is that <laughs> the new season of survivor is next week uh this next week being like september 22nd um for it, people are probably gonna be listening to this in the past so if you are like get on it you know it's been for a couple weeks now and how's um, the future yeah is it good um and uh every week he's gonna like ask questions on his instagram and you can like reply to them so i'm like i'm gonna need to do this now aren't i because like i want to be on the show and they're gonna be like well you didn't say anything to jeff Probst's instagram we know you saw it but what a tragedy i know <laughs> so all right so i'm gonna be doing wednesday nights so when I don't hear from you for 90 minutes or 60 minutes, I will know this is the time. Or when you don't is. hear from me for 40 days, you'll know where I am. <laughs> All right, time for, would you rather? <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'm coming undone. Here we go. <laughs> would you rather spend the next year of your life in a library or spend the next year of your life in a museum? Library. That's the other fun fact about me is that I am uh, a huge reader. I'll read anything. Um, I read everything from recipe books to history books to biographies to fiction, nonfiction. It, it's a library. Cool. How about you, Sarah? Oh, I know. Oh. Okay. Well, I know mine. I Go ahead. Okay. It would be the Philadelphia Museum of Art just because it's super mm -hmm. cool. There's a lot of... Um, furniture in there <laughs> so, could just like take a week to to you know f like feel out this chippendale bed or whatever <laughs> i would go into the suit of armor room and just like put on put on a suit of armor and just like go to the Met Gala. see if i can just yeah. fall asleep in it standing susan there's a beautiful gigantic suit of armor room in the philadelphia museum of art it's so cool and it's I've there's there it is oh, an amazing nice. museum that's so cool it's such a Great. cool museum yeah well, to cut to, my answer would be library. <laughs> because it's government funded and I wouldn't feel like I'm being judged by the bourgeoisie for <laughs> sleeping sleeping in the stacks. <laughs> I'm surprised you even give a rat's ass about the bourgeoisie. And if we yeah, who are they? Home. I can't. <laughs> 
running up and down just the stairs. leave me alone <laughs> yes we get I'm to a pick libraries, though i went to i went to the library yeah. of congress that's where i want to go Ooh. Ooh. yeah i'll sleep in the stack for the library of congress oh i take that that's pretty cool yeah. library bucket list there you go yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Susan. Before this devolves into. <laughs> before we get weird. Yeah. Or... Wait a minute. Before we get weird. Before we get weirder. And we'll be right back. <laughs> it is. Sorry. We also still want to say thank you. <laughs> yes, we will. <laughs> thank you so much. Yes. For Susan, thank up. you. Yes. What? Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> we told you. Oh, no. It's happening. <laughs> This will all be on the recording. Like Thank Cinderella. you so much for <laughs> for taking your time and sharing all these amazing things and stories and speaking about a bunch of groups of people that we really need to be aware of and supportive of and understand. And it's thank you. Well, thank you for having me on and letting me be just me. Um, everybody gets worried when they get on a podcast of I have to be so professional and I always hate to disappoint the host because <laughs> you know you usually I can be professional to a certain point but then the rest of me comes out because I again no fucks left so but thank you also ladies for putting out a podcast like I said that helps to educate the greater community not just other therapists not just their family and friends and I think it's really important because I think in what we do as professionals is get people to start talking so there's no more stigma or we reduce the stigma yeah that's that's the main fight for me absolutely how to the yes yes never said that before and i'm never gonna say it again <laughs> but hell yes all right thank you for listening to our show be sure to subscribe slash rate slash review us on stitcher spotify and apple podcasts you can check us out on instagram at tndpod that's t N as in Nancy, D as in Derek Pod David? on Twitter. <laughs> or on Twitter at Therapist ND Pod, all one word. Or visit our website at tndpodcast.com. And if you would like to have access to special bonus episodes like the, uh, it's already there by the time this recording is going to air, but um, as me, Sarah, and our one of our prior guests, Matt, talk about The Conjuring. Um, so that's really exciting. If you would like access to that, head on over to uh, patreon.com slash TND podcast. Um, you can find various levels there. I'm off script now, so I don't know what I'm talking about. But you can also send us an email at uh, therapistsnextdoor at gmail.com. That's therapists plural if you didn't hear the extra S I added in there. Until next time. <laughs> We, we are your, are your therapists, therapists next, next door. door. Beat ya. <laughs> You're terrifying.